Hello, and welcome to the Sound and Silence podcast. My name's Cameron. I'm a percussionist and composer. And I'm Matthew Lukens, uh, chaplain at Canterbury House. And we are your hosts and organizers of Sound and Silence, taking place here at Canterbury House. Uh, Canterbury House is the Episcopal Church's campus ministry at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. We're also a concert venue and a community center for artists and activists. And once a week, we do this, where we get together to experiment with contemplative music and contemplative silence. Mm-hmm. And once a month, we bring in a guest artist who provides the sound that brings us in and out of our shared silence. But before that, we like to take some time with our guest artist to talk to them about uh, their life, their work, their influences, uh, and their sense of spirituality. In... Today on the podcast, you'll hear about Rabisha's solo project, Sunken Cages, which involves layering live loops on an electronic drum set and manipulating the sounds in real time. The project is rooted in Indian folk and black American music, but draws influence from many musics in many places that Ravisha studied from around the world, including Egypt, Iran, Turkey, to name a few. Ravisha is doing really amazing work with creating space and building bridges across musical culture, and he talks a little bit about how to build authentic community across all of these social and class barriers that we face, uh, and much more. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I was very inspired by it. And uh, please welcome Ravish Moman. Are we recording? <laughs> oh God, so annoying. I'd like to say welcome to the... Thanks for having me at your podcast and also having me at the Canterbury House. It's been more than a decade to be back here and I am excited. Wait, you've, you've played here before? I have played here before. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, cool. I did a Jazz Vespers with my Tria Tarana. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, that's awesome. We got so. history here. <laughs> yeah. I got roots in Ann Arbor. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ann Arbor. So, uh, you know, my background is um, Indian, and especially when you study Indian classical music, there's a connection between... Um, uh, a spiritual element and music, and in India they're inseparable. And um, music isn't just for entertainment. When you are, you know, practicing and creating music, it's also like you are attaining like godness or closeness to a better self through musical practice and through your uh, musical community building. So for me, even though I wasn't a musician, you know, I talked about this with Cameron. I didn't actually start playing music till I was 18. But early on, my family, having known a lot of musicians in India, we always had a cavalcade of um, maestros coming through our house and just hang out and jam and just like mm. play beats and recite the vocal syllables that go with the um, uh, Indian, you know, tabla, classical, um, you know, repertoire. For those of you that may not know that, like Indian music, the tabla syllables are mnemonic syllables that are uh, assigned to each tabla tone, so you might say a phrase like ta perikita ta ti ta, and the tabla player knows exactly what to play when that's heard. So, you know, you grew up with that practice, and then a lot of times the music was self-played in the temple, so there's that tradition, you know. Mm-hmm. But also, what's interesting is, so my family is denominationally mixed, so we were Muslim and Hindu, and we also have Christians in our family, mm-hmm. so we had all kinds of spirituality from that more normative spirituality aspect. I mean, I hate using that word, but let, you know, let, let's kind of talk about different ways we approach spirituality. And then, um, so just kind of grew up around a lot of different ways to um, think about sound and tone and hearing like, you know, whether it was Gregorian chants or hearing like Sufi music or hearing like, um, like bhajans. So like I heard it all growing up. 
So it's uh, it's not something I specifically play, but it's part of like the aesthetic that I'm bringing out. And you're going to hear some of that tonight where I've channeled some um, meditative sounds and practices built around like a Sufi uh, meditative um, uh, a melodic cycle. And then, uh, you know, and then from there we go off. <laughs> So you didn't start playing music till you were 18. Yeah. Then. So yeah. what got you into it? And then what was that early stage yeah, like? Yeah, early stage was just studying and just studying. <laughs> Trying to be, you know, uh, engineer. My parents wanted me to go on down the path of being, you know, a civil engineer or something in that world. A respectable job. Yeah, you know, a real Something job, that pays the bills. You know, and now that I'm older, you know, I fought them so much, you know, when I was a teen, as all teens do. But, like... I see their point. I'm like, yes, I get it. You know, you don't want your kids to starve. <laughs> yeah. But that being said, I got into music very late because I just came across a drum just just by chance. It happened to be a, um, a Pittsburgh Students for Peace rally where we were protesting the first Gulf War. And I was very much a part of that when I lived in Pittsburgh. So we were very much a part of that. And somebody just handed me a drum and just said, play something. And I was like, I don't play, but then it immediately stuck. And then I wanted to learn more about what that was. And it was kind of a circuitous way to go back to my roots, although I yeah. came from a tradition of having Indian music around me, but hadn't played it. So kind of coming back to it. The know. drum came to you. The drum, the drum came to me. Yeah. It, physically, it was yeah. handed to me. Drums do that. So you just, you, did you change over in college to start studying percussion? No, or? I actually finished, uh, that's a good question. I should have. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we'd had these, these conversations 15 Dude, years ago. this podcast a long time why? ago. Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Where were you? Canterbury <laughs> House. Yes, but um, no, I actually finished a yeah, structural engineering degree, um, but I was studying uh, tabla privately with a student of Zakir Hussain. Um, Uh, this um, wonderful uh, teacher named um, Jim Despirto, who was one of his disciples, and he happened to live in uh, Pittsburgh, and I studied with him. And then later on, uh, I did get a day job doing engineering in New York City, but then at the same time, I was studying with um, Andrew Cyril, Cyril, uh, you know, jazz master, played with um, Cecil Taylor, an amazing lineage, and I think, I believe, he was just awarded a NEA Jazz Masters, you know, so um, serious player, serious and lovely human and he was like a spiritual and musical mentor, you know, and this ties all that spirituality together, right? Yeah. Because music for him, even though he was a jazz drummer, wasn't just about chops and playing. It was about wh- whom you play with and about what you play and tone and sound and connectedness to the energy being just as important as like the notes you play and the, uh, the mo- melodies you play, you know? So it's all, it's all together, right? Talking <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, I... I'd love to hear more about your experience of mentorship because that's like in so many spiritual traditions, um, you know, there might be a text, there might be things you can refer to, but so many, it is about like the practice of having a mentor, like things are passed on. And so both about what your own experience and maybe how, if there's been any change about how you've thought about mentorship over time and and your own growth. So those are two distinct questions, but yeah. So initially I was going to say that, um, so we come from an oral tradition culture where we don't have notated music, just a lot of African cultures and a lot of Asian cultures and the diaspora. We tend to just pass it down generationally from the what we call the shishya guru relationship everyone knows guru that's almost like a household word overused uh but shishya is probably not as well known means student so the teacher-student relationship for lack of uh, you know better way to phrase that is generationally handed down 
and as a part of our spiritual and musical practice. So that's how you learn. And so basically, you don't just there's, you know you don't just decide that you want to play music. A teacher has to also accept you. You know, mm -hmm. so it's like it's like a give and take. You know, if a teacher doesn't accept you, then they, you know then it gets blurry. Then maybe you go another teacher. Yeah. You know, but then or maybe they feel you're not good enough. So there's you know it gets complicated. But you know by and large, people who have the musical instincts and the urges and the you know proclivity for musical. Um, arts usually tend to be accepted by the teachers and you know they tend to have lifelong relationships with them you know it's a lifelong thing you know like you literally live with your teacher you take care of them you're part of their life you help prepare meals you're it's not just about like okay here's our lesson done time you money you know? yeah it's a whole yeah, thing. yeah so you're living with them you know so but then fast forward to now and I feel, you know, it was actually amazing that Cameron was so sweet to have to want to meet with me earlier. And we had an amazing lunch earlier and just rapping about New York and, you know, some of these issues and, you know, tying them in. And so for me, I felt like, you know, I don't really consider myself a mentor, but gosh darn it. I've actually been in New York for over 23 years. And yeah, I know a thing or two about New York, you know. Yeah. So let me pass that stuff on. You know? yeah. So we just basically talked about, you know, talked about that. So, me, so to me, mentorship isn't about me claiming to be an authority, but actually coming from, um, but, but, you know, but, but it's like experiential knowledge, you know, and mm -hmm. just like, yeah. uh, just coming at it from that point of view, as opposed to like, I read about it somewhere, you know. Yeah, you've been in the scene. <laughs> yeah. You've it's, absorbed it's like, the actual energy And I'm from also the being clear that it's my point of view. Somebody else might be like, well, he's full of bleep. But for me, it's been <laughs> about like my journey, my path and my specific, um, you know, uh, practice as we talked about that word that that word kept, has kept coming up in our conversation practice, practice yeah. and that has so many layers right practice is on one level just physically practicing your instrument the other word is what is your practice like what do you do like how do you put your craft together yeah and then also combines the spiritual right yeah. well my practice involves like putting all of these um you know elements from like different spiritual traditions and chants and like creating hypnotic music and channeling all of it into my electronic aesthetic that's also practice right mm -hmm. so it's yeah. all practice you know <laughs> yeah yeah lead us into the present like tell us more about like what how would you describe what your practice is right now yeah the last um, five years maybe so yeah last time i was at canterbury house gosh i can't remember when that was but it was a while ago might have been like 2008 or 10 or something it was with my earlier acoustic project called Trio Tarana, which was Oud and me on drum set and a violinist. And it was acoustic, but we were like doing free jazz, but with like um, Eastern melodies. So imagine that. And yeah. that's the sound we had. So my practice has developed since then, and I slowly got more and more into electronic music. But not electronic dance music or music concrete. I kind of, I mean, I listened to everything, you know, but I wasn't like a huge fan of noise uh, music per se. But then, you know, I started hearing a lot of like electronic music that was beat based. And one of the first things that hit me, I think it was around 2008, was uh, an electronic music producer named Flying Lotus, mm -hmm. who turns out to be Alice Coltrane's nephew, you know, like nice oh, lineage over that. there. Wow. Yeah, he's got deep roots, you know. Yeah. And, he, and, uh, and a cousin of mine who's a music producer and um, uh, has a studio was like, Ravi, you got to hear this stuff. And I was like so much, you know, a jazz purist, you know, I was very much of like the the mindset that electronics are just bad and it's like I mean, tainting the music acoustic or nothing it's devil music yeah <laughs> you can't play you can't play it man it's like you know you what is all it. this you know like you're just faking it man you know so I was like part of that whole scene you know yeah. but then he played that and, and it was the first time I'd heard electronic music that was beat based but it was so elastic and it wasn't four on the floor but mm. you could hear a beat but it was very elastic and he had yeah. used his aunt's um, 
um, harp samples in there, and it was also the way he stretched them and bent them and glitched them in, into the yeah. electronic space. I'd never heard anything like it. I was like, I want this energy, but I want it to be in the world that I live in. And it's taken me since then, pretty much. What are we at, 2023? So, like, yeah, it's taken me that long, over 10 years, you know, <laughs> like 12 years to, like, come at this current practice, which comes from having played acoustic music, mm -hmm. taking improvisation, and taking rhythms from India and, like, the Asian diaspora and North Africa and putting it all in this, like, digital realm, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of what I do right now. So it's not like I'm a electronic music producer. I'm not a DJ. I don't just, like push buttons but it's like um an it's a live electronic music practice mm -hmm. that's beat based i yes. got at that beat based part because a lot of times as soon as you say experimental people tend to think it's not beat based uh -huh. which has to do with something also i focus on is like decolonizing this idea of this western idea of experimental music because a lot of experimental music comes from the west and the idea of it whether and again i'm not knocking it i love all of it whether coming out of john cage or whatever i listen to everything love john cage's theater pieces and mm -hmm. all of it but then you know a lot of times we associate like beatlessness with experimental music yeah but if you're from uganda or if you're from like um you know um jakarta and you're, let's say, building a practice based around gamelan music, but you want to do Ableton. And there's an amazing band, actually, called Uwal Masa mm -hmm. that literally do just that. You would totally dig it. You guys wow. would all dig them. Nice. And um, so they literally take Indonesian instruments and they blend it with Ableton push and they're bringing these electronic aesthetic but have live gamelan instruments in the mix and that to me is a valid experimental practice because it is oh, experimental by definition it's not gamelan it's not dance music yeah. but it's like all the above so for me I'm like why separate the beat you should, part you should be able to know? dance and feel that that <laughs> groove but also experiment yeah like, yeah so for me it's that or even if you're not dancing just the idea of having something just, beat based yeah. yeah like in the experimental realm and also experimenting with the beats like yeah. find new ways to play them new ways to uh twist them and new ways to like um you know rearrange them and i think that's still to me experimental oh yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah i'm sure I hope like, i'm not saying anything controversial here <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't think i have a lot of like you know people get really uptight about that you know and it's an ongoing conversation i don't have like the final say in it but just my own aesthetic is like i like it to be a beat-based practice you know? yeah totally yeah, and that word experimental changes so much throughout history. Like what Charlie Parker did was so experimental at some point. Totally, you know? so but it was all like changing. super grooving. It was super burning, and it was amazing. And they went hard, you know. And yeah, it was like really uh, um, well designed and well intentioned. And it wasn't Absolutely. just random, you know. Yeah. Um, can what? Like, what sorts of audience and spaces do you bring this sound to? Because, like, just listening to you earlier, I was like, oh, this is totally danceable. I love this. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, for my, my own awesome. background, I have my, like, we call it my techno awakening in yes, 2019. Yes. I want to hear more about that. Yeah. Oh, no, we don't need to do about me. I'm, I'm here every week. <laughs> Not about me. <laughs> but, like, I'm, I'm absolutely geeking out over here yeah, about everything yeah, yeah. you're talking about. Uh, Can I tag yeah. on to that question? My question yeah. was actually really related to that. I was going to ask about if your practice, if you ever think about it, like, in terms of, we often, like, do music for ourselves, you know, yeah. like, to feel good. And if you, I was going to ask if you ever, like, intentionally craft for a community or for a certain purpose. Just how, like, a lot of yeah. religious traditions. Um, so both those questions. Like, yeah, I think, like, audience, man, that's, like, a really tough one. Because I've been having this conversation a lot and having, like, a, a, a I don't want to say mental breakdown, but, like, an existential crisis over it. So for a long time, 
audiences for experimental music have tended to tended to be academic, older, mm-hmm. and let's just be blunt, disproportionately white. You yeah. know, and I've I've been of the mind that wait a minute, like Matthew just said, he heard it and he was like, what is it? Like, where is it coming from? And how are you doing what you're doing? And I believe maybe I'm naive or maybe I'm innocent, but I believe that if you if you bring it to the people, and by people I mean just everybody, um, you know, you can uh, find a way to vibe with that. And I think that uh, how music gets sold and marketed has so much to do with who has access to what. Mm-hmm. And like, for instance, the other day, I did a workshop at DSA, which is the Detroit School of Arts, which is a all-performing arts high school in um, Detroit. And they literally invited the entire school, which was like a little intimidating, like looking out at the auditorium. I'm like, oh my God, there's like 300, 400 kids there. And just me with this, right? Like uh-huh. not like a band. I don't play bombastic. I don't play like you know, music that's familiar to them. But they were riveted because they hadn't heard. And also we had like a super huge sub going, you know, we had like, oh, we had thing. the bass. We had the thing. Oh, yeah. The bass. So we were like, they were vibing on that. And I, and I talked it down to them and I explained it. And I think people need an entryway into the music sometimes. I said, look, you're going to hear a lot of things that are unfamiliar, but you're also going to hear familiar tones and sounds. You might hear an 808 drum set or you might hear a bass line that you recognize, but I'm working with Turkish rhythms or rhythms from Iran or rhythms from India and you're going to hear all of it so it's going to be familiar and unfamiliar and then you know and they're kids and they're smart and they got it immediately you know so the audience it's like I want to play for everybody and specifically I think a lot also about class I think a lot mm-hmm. lately you know I've been listening to a lot of like Howard Zinn and also like you know Noam Chomsky also talks a lot about like how in America especially they don't talk about it. it's like you're poor or you're bougie you know well, you're not just poor and bougie or like loaded, you know, like we don't even have the right vocabulary to talk about mm. class in our country, yeah. you know? It's like if you're working class, if you're a plumber, if you're a carpenter, it's totally different and fine as opposed to if you're a um, software engineer, which is a whole different aesthetic and different thing. So I want to play for working class people and I want to connect with different classes of people. And that's been like mm. really challenging because the music isn't sold that way. It isn't marketed mm-hmm. yeah. in a lot of directions. Like a big example was I played this festival in Italy in Pordenone literally in last November. And it was in a beautiful chapel, actually. This ancient chapel with the beautiful scrolls. It was so spiritual and historic. And it was like, oh, you got to play, and, you know. And they really did a great job of like converting into this like amazing venue. And everybody plays there. And I was lucky to be on the festival and so after soundcheck I had time to walk around town you know just like see what's around and Pordenone turns out to be really racially mixed it was like a lot of West Africans and North Africans and Middle Eastern folk and I saw South Asians that looked like me people in the market at the farmer's market just like tooling about but when it came time to the gig it was all Italian you know mm-hmm. and you know I'm like what happened we were they were literally there across the street and like what is this like what just happened mm-hmm. so um oh. I felt like really bummed, but at the same time, I had to like accept that. Well, actually, it's not that different from what happens even in New York. Or like you know, like if you look at the venues that are there, they're marketed to a certain kind of audience, and um, that's who comes to the show. So, Matthew, yeah. I think you asked like a amazing question, and like it's also like how much time do we have, right? And I think, <laughs> and speaking of techno, one of the great things that I got into techno later for was realizing how amazing it was in community building and breaking down barriers and class barriers, you know? And that happens so much in electronic music. And, you know, in my world, and when I say my world, I mean in the purest world of jazz or experimental music, people like kind of like 
brush all that aside. Oh, that's dance music, or you know, whatever. It's like beat based, or it's not really like you know, it's commercial. Talk to those people. Yeah, let's get them all in a room. You know. Yeah. But but going back to what Matthew said, it's like, and also my partner happens to be a DJ and exposed me to some of that world. And for the first time, even in my own hometown, I saw a whole other side of the city that I've never seen before, like class and gender mixed and balanced, and like all genders, all classes, all races. I'm like, how come these people don't come to my shows? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So that's like a really powerful, and I think it's a question that's hopefully an ongoing conversation. And you know, I would love for all your guests to address that in some way because we were all going to have different answers. You know. Yeah. I really believe that like we can ask always ask the question like how do we make music about community and like how do we make it about sharing space together? And I think that every genre can like have that their center. Yeah. Whereas a lot of especially like academic centered music often has trouble with that. Definitely. Doesn't value it at all. One way I think is like but just something simple is just to like build an evening or an event as a multi-genre event and just have different mm. things in it. It's just so simple. It's a no-brainer. It happens in Europe like often and uh, yeah. all the time in, in a lot of venues and you're used to that. Like, oh, I'll come for a singer-songwriter, stay for an experimental guitar player and then hang out for the techno DJ at the end of the night and then we're going to party and then, you know, so then, you're, then you know and you build an arc for the evening and it's a vibe and it's not that difficult to put that together but like, there are different promoters for each of those things. You know, oh, I only promote singer-songwriters. I only promote experimental music. I only promote techno. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. but that's <laughs> actually an issue we kind of run into around Canterbury House, not just with our other concerts, but even with Sound and Silence is like people will often come um, because like performer or someone that knew about the night invites them and trying to get that sense of continuity. And it's like, hey, you know, even if you if you liked tonight that you showed up for you'll like next month too. Exactly. It, I promise it will be very different yeah. and I promise yeah. it will still hit something where you're like, I get the connection between these. Yeah. Because yeah. um, we're building on practices and we're building on uh, aesthetics that are like, yeah, combining all these worlds together. But it's yeah. so hard to communicate that to people though. It's really hard, you know, and like, and yeah. also like, you know, and then we need allies in, in those communities too, you know, like one of my big things is realizing Am I culturally appropriating or am I appropriating things or speaking when it's not my place? And also, like, I'm South mm-hmm. Asian, which is true, but I come from, I have enough privilege. Like, I'm not of a lower caste and, I, you know, I went to a good school, you know, I have an engineering degree. So, you know, like, I came from a middle class family, but, like, I'm very aware that even I can't speak for all Indians. I can't speak for all castes. I can't speak for all genders. Mm-hmm. And I, as a heteronormative male, I'm very mindful and I wish, like, more heteronormative males were more mindful about just not speaking for everybody. Yeah, if you're listening, Florida. Florida? <laughs> so it's like, you know, Generally it's Florida. <laughs> so it's just like, just be more mindful of like um, my role and my place and how I fit in and how I can build community in my way, but also knowing that I need allies because that's something that has to happen. Like, and, and I think people try to circumvent that and just try to do it all. Like, let's just, mm, let's make this happen by postering or putting big money into promo. But then you're hitting all the wrong markers, you mm-hmm. know? It's like, that's not how you do it. Like, techno, when it started, but, you know, that's not how they did it. They didn't like, you know, this is before Facebook. How did they do I know, it? kids before Facebook. How did they do it? What's that? How did they like, you know, I, I, I'm sure Matthew can talk a little oh, bit about no, that. No, no. I'm 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 still such a neophyte in many ways. Um, it's just something that uh, a lot of what you were saying about dance floors being a space that breaks down barriers um, is one of the things that keeps yeah. me coming back. Well, first uh, first and foremost, it was a safe space, and that was the first mm-hmm. point of it because it was a safe space for people that were like ostensibly ostracized or otherwise like you know chastised or otherwise you know like even like you know hated on to be blunt to have a safe space to come together. So that was something that they all knew would be a space 
that they could come together and create it, you know, and, and participate in. And so I think like that's how it started. And then, you know, word of mouth gets out and then as communities build and that's how I think definitely got started. And then, then of course, like, you know, once it actually starts to become a genre, then then it takes on a, a life energy of its own. Then other people emulate it. And then, and then yeah. the rest, as they say, is history. And then it becomes everything, appropriated, sanitized, you know, and separated mm. from its origins, all the above, you know. But there's also good in that. <laughs> yeah. It's evolving. Yeah. It's yeah. evolving, you know. So that's how I look at it. So I think, like, it's hard to build that, I think, you know, especially... But I would also think, like, you know, there's a space like Canterbury House where you do different things. Like, I would come here not knowing what it is because if I'm looking for, like, a practice or a way to meditate, I would trust that, okay, like, it's, it's going to be in this, you know, like rubric you know they're not just something gonna bring yeah. again you might like a death metal band which might be into it but yeah. it just seems like you're looking at things that kind of like generally and a death metal band could be bringing a spiritual practice i'm not like a hater oh, you know or like yeah. you know all i'm saying is like it's built around a certain like a rubric right mm-hmm. so i think yeah. like hopefully audiences can, can trust that and do you feel that and then you know i hate to be the interviewer but you can answer that yeah <laughs> like with i think it's been like it's like sometimes like over over supper when someone comes to kind of the we also meet every week as well but that's a much much smaller mm-hmm. group mm-hmm. Um, and we experiment and play around with what sound we want and it's that ends up getting a bunch of people for whom like no actually putting time aside in my week to do a silent practice is very useful for me because they might be like me where I'm very bad at making myself do it on my own right. but when I have other people to do it with it just gets me there faster yeah right. um, and so I think this year we we you know you talk to people and you know, they kind of like light up a little bit when you're getting into it. And so it's slow going. I think we've built a really good foundation this year. And so the question next year is like, how do we better communicate what this space is to get people into it? Whereas I feel like this year was a lot about testing it out and getting it down, which I feel really solid about like the consistency now. So it's easier to invite people to something when you know there's a consistency there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Um, a big part of it. Yeah. And, and then also the risk taking in it, right? Because you are taking risks. The audience, we're all taking risks, and and but it's a risk that's a calculated risk. Like you know, it's going to be something different, but it's going to be something rewarding. And I think that works from both sides of the equation. Like for me too, as a performer, I don't know what's coming either. But for me, right. like I, it's, it's like a, it's like a two way street, right? And I also have to have a similar faith in you guys. That okay, well, I trust you too to have like put the word out in the right ways or whatever even if it's still evolving even though you still have to like work on getting all that sorted it's still like okay it's like we're building this you know like mm. so and I, and I think in, 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 the, in the end like that really has to be a two way street like and that, that's how you build communities I think the biggest problem now is like this, a lot of the mom and pop spaces have closed down and all you're left with is like big places and their businesses and they need to meet their bottom line and that unfortunately is going to be leading towards commercial stuff is going to be leading towards more populist stuff and a lot of the other stuff gets like left out you know so I think we see that every place whether it's Detroit or New York Atlanta Pittsburgh Philly like I just see that everywhere you know so that's something we have to fight you know whether I think spaces like this exist in other places and I'm glad to see that that's also why like when I reached out to Steve and he immediately like offered Canterbury House and once we got the date going I was like yes and having been here before and we had a real vibe here before you know yeah so we had people like hooting and hollering it was a thing you know oh yeah so it was amazing you know it's a party yeah it was yeah Yeah, it'll be like that tonight but silent (laughs) (laughs) Woo! but in my head I mean one time someone approached the board and was like hey we should come up with a plan for uh, you know what we do if a real estate developer makes us an offer we can't refuse and I was like over my actual dead body (laughs) oh no Uh, 
dumb. No like, way. Not, I mean, it was just to like, hey, this is prime real estate, so we may have to face that question. I'm like, we may have to face that question. The answer is no, because yeah. like the sort of space that having space like this makes possible is just increasingly vanished in the world, and it's no, yeah. so precious it's that invaluable. we have a room here yeah. where like, so many different Starbucks? things can happen. Yeah. Right. Like, like, what literally could they do that could better what happens here? Like, literally what? Unless they put another Canterbury <laughs> another on top Canterbury. of this Canterbury. <laughs> like, there, and there's so many there's yeah. so many churches and spiritual communities that have a building that they're not using nearly as much anymore, and they question whether they should sell in any time. I'm like, no, don't, don't, because, like, if you could figure out how to offer space to make things happen, because those spaces are just disappearing no, everywhere, disappearing, yeah. and you actually could be such a resource to yeah, it's artists and it's, activists it's and yeah, communities it's happening everywhere yeah. you know and yeah so this needs to happen and, and I'm heartened to see you know and also like the energy and I'll say this is also tying into our conversation earlier Cameron it's like it's certainly not in New York anymore like certainly we have a lot of density but this kind of a grassroots approach and like building community for instance like I work a lot with black artists and I'm very aware of like bringing black folk out to my concerts and being engaged with them so I started reaching out to like a, a guy who was a te- he's a techno producer actually in Ithaca and he's part of a black farmers collective out in Ithaca and they're creating this permaculture, the sustainable farming community, and they're bringing black farmers into their fold and giving and teaching them knowledge about um, cultivating the land and like making it like you know. So there's a lot of this happening in, the, in the, all yeah, over the country. Especially in Detroit, like exactly Is what that, you talked about. Yeah, like yeah. Farming it's happening everywhere, man. It's happening yeah. in Vermont. Like they were giving away land to black farmers in Ithaca, uh-huh. and then. As you That's just where it starts. Starts in the soil Detroit. and with music. And then you know what? It's never in the news. It's just you know, it's not in the news. Yeah. It was last it was like if we want to hear about the shootings and all that, but we don't want to hear about like oh, black farmers are like taking over land and teaching permaculture practices and like you know like creating community. Wow, that's a headline. <laughs> that's yeah. amazing that's to what me. Make me feel like, good about you know, the world. So, so it's like I'm trying to like also find out where all these pockets of energy. Ithaca, by the way, Ithaca in New York, but you know where Cornell is, but they're not connected to Cornell. They do mm-hmm. their own thing. So it's like that, you know. So I, I do. So it's kind of like it's very different from what you guys do here, but in a way, like it is connected to farming communities and it's connected to like you know bringing in working class queer kids who are otherwise like alienated from like the other venues or maybe. Uh, feel threatened in other like more heteronormative spaces mm-hmm. so they're yeah. creating safe spaces for all of that and creating black friendly spaces in Ithaca which is in northwest in New York State which isn't like isn't known for that you know right. so I think this kind of energy is happening all over the country I know my other my bandmate in my other project reported back something similar in Portland Oregon which is also otherwise a very white city right. so but it's happening and it's you know so you know it's it's a few and far between but like I think the fact that we're having these conversations is a good start and just like if more people have these conversations and like more spaces like this open up and like we just start to think about creating community outside of just like the mainstream you know because that's where and that's what lasts you know like Mm -hmm. look I'm back here after 10-15 years I can't think of any other mainstream band that's even lasted as long you know like you know what I mean like everything flows flavor of the monthisms unless you're like super huge like the Beatles or Rolling Stones most bands come and fade away it's like but we're here I'm here because I've built this community and Steve loves what I do and I love what he does and we generally have worked on staying in touch and that's not just uh, a business relationship, you right? Know? <laughs> yeah. So that's all. We I both have stake here. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, a, I mean, I could just keep yeah, going. Yeah. Like I am, I am, I'm so in my nerd zone. Um, yeah. At Sound and Silence, we try to make like a a space where like different religions and different faiths and different levels of spirituality people can come in. Like you said earlier, like you might be looking for a space to meditate. 
I'm trying to like bring bridge the gap between um having inclusive music and inclusive performance spaces and like a global inclusive spirituality and how we're like bridging that in this space. Um, so one of the phrases I use uh, is I call it like folk music from nowhere. And uh-huh. it's like, you know, it's, so it's like that. It's like, you know it, but you don't know it. So that's one way of bridging things. It's like, you've heard it, but you haven't really heard it because I'm putting yeah. it together. It's like, it's, you know what? It's a live remix. It's like a remix yeah. happening in real time. It's <laughs> like, you're, I'm taking beats. I'm literally rearranging them on the spot. And that's what happens and when I'm playing live. So, so that's part of that practice. And as far as like the global music spirituality part, it's like, it's still very much reverential and, 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 and cognizant of the roots of where these samples come from and like the rhythms that I'm playing and like, and, and like, and I'm working with. So a lot of times they might be like, um, like rhythms from like Mumbai. That's my home, you know, my home city where I was raised or there could be rhythms from another part of India that I have like absorbed and studied or North African or Middle Eastern or whatever but it's still reverential and I'm using the word global much more to imply that um, like I call it like a, a global music of the future you know because it's not like it's not trying because you know one of the things I always hated was like people would say so you know what do you listen to you're like oh let's do rock jazz pop blues classical and global I'm like yeah. so you just literally lump the entire world so it's not western so that means that it's so, everything else and global I'm like it's or, the, not or, white or the worst is like Afri- I listen to African music right <laughs> like uh, West African East African Central African I listen to European music like uh, um, you know from Sudan from Morocco from Ghana from you know like where like it's all completely different right genres in general are tough but the world world music gold music is the yeah, so, that's so for me like I'm, so when people do I, I do get specific like I'm using rhythms from Mumbai some North African rhythms I'm working with rhythms from South Africa and you're gonna hear like Sufi chants from Iran you know what I mean like there's a specific rhythm so in that sense it is global but like it's global based on specific traditions and not just trying to appropriate some mishmash that's like spiritually devoid of any uh, meaning you know (laughs) yeah totally yeah I hope that answered it in a roundabout way. Yeah, I feel like I didn't actually ask a question, but just kind of proposed like a think tank moment there. Uh, and I think we're trying to do a similar thing in the spiritual side here. Like we're not trying to like like make a global religion or make one thing or right. make a, a certain you way. You can to do come things. at it with your own thing, and you take from it what feeds into your practice. Exactly, and then you take away from it. Hopefully something to take away but then if you and then that feeds into your being right like yeah. no one's trying to make like i'm not trying to make you into a sufi practitioner or like indian or how could i this it's because it's all happening at the same time yeah right? so <laughs> like yeah so but you're taking different things of it some people latch on to like oh i heard that rhythm what was that about or i heard that um the vocal refrain or what was that or what was the melodic right so people latch on to different things you know and then you, yeah. that's your takeaway right yeah <clears throat> and i kind of feel like i don't, I don't know if i I'm not curious about this, but I feel like the more that these different like areas of music and in spirituality are like in conversation are, is like helpful for the world. Like the more they're like seen together yeah. and like can talk to each other, Definitely. the more we can like bridge build, build bridges with the actual communities mm-hmm. too. Yeah. And also who is doing the bridge building, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, who for a long, long time it's been like, as we were saying, academics and people who claim to be authority figures and, you know, just like, I am yeah. here to teach you and learn. You know what I mean? Like, gonna, well, we need to make this, this nonprofit to help you. Exactly. So we community. need this like give and take and, you know, build allies in the community, you know, like that's yeah. the word I've been really uh, using a lot lately because it's, it's an important word, you know, like you're trying to like, not like um, take over a community or like force something. Yeah. You know? like, like, yeah, we want allies just in yeah. the same way with music. I, even fans seems like a weird like word like I want allies you know like yeah. people I can build community with you know not just like 
okay, a fan is nice in that in the in, in the aesthetic entertainment sense of music, but like on a deeper musical sense, like if you have allies, then you know what? They'll also follow your musical journey. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. that. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> then they can support you and you can yeah. support them. And that's different from somebody like, oh man, I liked your third record, but everything else is like, bleep, you know? Like, <laughs> so they want the objects so, that you create. You know, yeah, exactly. I, mean, you know? I want the whole person. Re- yeah. Reminds me of this. I mean, there was a, the band had an unfortunate end and, and breakup, but I got to see them live and it was this like, queer pop punk duo. Oh, yeah? Um, cool. Uh, and at, at their show, they were both speaking on stage about how to use, like, we've got this cultural script of you show up and you see a show, but actually, how can we use this as a space of, like, creating community that has more depth? That's and it was awesome. just so interesting to see two performers who were you know, in their young 20s really thinking yeah. about um, what we do when we go see music is so much deeper than just going and consuming an experience and actually just making that make, stating that explicitly just to the audience in some of their in-between banter like yeah. in-between jokes and stuff talking about no the world needs queer community and like and we yeah. all have our souls moved by music and that's what we're doing here yeah, yeah. yeah we're doing both <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and you know and that to me like it's just funny but I think a lot of dance music has done that very successfully you know Definitely. And like in a very successful, whether it's dub or techno or dance hall or just you name it, like just like really bringing different peoples together and like really like creating safe spaces for that. Yeah, I think it's really important, and a lot, a lot of it never gets talked about in the mainstream in that because it's looked at as like as you were saying, it's like commodified. They're just looking at like the dance aspect, but not the community mm-hmm. building aspect of it. You know, and the the yeah. ones I find in all the spaces I like going to, uh, the people who are in charge of it are so friendly. They're they're yeah. so friendly and inviting and just yeah, delighted awesome. to have you there and yeah. delighted to just be making just so community different from, and like, support each other. So different from again not to like I'm not naming names but like a jazz club or a rock club, which is more about like we got to sell you a two drink minimum and you, get about, you got to buy your tickets and no comps and you know it's yeah. all this and that and all these rules yeah. and like no talking between this and that you know I mean not to say you shouldn't have rules but like you know obviously like even creating a queer safe space you have to have rules about safety but like it's a different it's a different thing you know it's a different community building and then just approaching it from a business point of view you got to have you know? your priorities in check like, <laughs> you know, it's not, the business it's, is yeah. important too but like yeah, you got to yeah. sell tickets of course. but, but Look, also you're like you're trying to make money you're yep. trying to make a business you're trying to pay the artist you're trying to pay the sound person you're trying to, you know, you're trying to make it a thing, but like, yeah, of course that's important. But like, yeah, the community is like the center yeah, of it. Yeah, totally. You know, that wow, we could like go on for hours. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Um, the audience, how you guys see. there? You still there? <laughs> Clap your hands. Well, I guess we could then m- might be a nice moment to just bring it in for the the landing question, which cool. is the um, do you have uh, uh, any any projects, <laughs> etc., that you'd like to take a moment to plug? Uh, I have a lot of projects, but I think for today, uh, not to overwhelm everyone, just come out. You're going to hear a lot of live interpretations of my solo work, which is called Sunken Cages, and it's literally built around everything I've been talking about for the last half hour. And yeah, let's just, just enjoy that moment. <laughs> All right. And where could they go? Where could people go to best follow you and what you do? Uh, it's, I mean, uh, you know, for better or worse, it's like, you know, it's, it's everywhere. So just go online and just look for Sunken Cages and you'll find all the appropriate social medias and whatnot, you know. So I don't want to plug any one site because you never know when it's going to go under. Instagram right. <laughs> will be dead when this podcast is. You hear this in two years. So I just say, like, just go online, look for Sunken Cages, and you'll find something. <laughs> all right, great. Well, I'm really excited for your set. Yes. Awesome. Thank thanks you, guys. For thanks for the today. great chat. And um, it's very lively and engaging. Thank you.
If you're listening and have any questions, comments, suggestions, or just want to say hi, please feel free to email us at canterburyhouse at umich.edu. Or we are on the internet, on Instagram and Facebook. You can say hi there too. Or if you're in town, feel free to say hi in person at Sound and Silence, which happens Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. during the Umich academic year. And if you'd like to support Sound and Silence directly, we greatly appreciate that. It helps us continue the podcast, continue the program, supporting artists and interfaith community building. And you can do so at canterburyhouse.org slash donate. Thank you.